Uh, find First Thessalonians chapter 5 in your copy of the Scripture. We'll pick up where we last left off. We'll probably, Lord willing, finish First Thessalonians next week and we'll just keep moving right into Second Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 5 looking tonight at uh, verses 12 and following. Relationships that keep the church flourishing. Relationships that keep the church flourishing. Everybody got one? Thank you, Eddie and Drew. Everybody got one? Anybody need one? Nope? Okay. Relationships that keep the church flourishing. Chapter 5. Let's pick up reading in verse 12. We'll read down through verse uh, 22. Paul says, uh, But we appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and have charge of you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, beloved, to admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise the words of prophets, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. You know, I think it is so powerful the way Paul addressed relationships in the body of Christ there at Thessalonica before he closes out this letter. I want you to remember from chapter 1, we saw that this was a church on fire. Uh, they were very serious about their ministry, their relationship to Christ, uh, they were very serious about sounding forth the gospel in their whole entire region and being salt and light and really impacting the whole area uh, for the sake of Christ. But they needed to keep their heads about them in, in many ways because Paul knew that there are enemies out there for the ministry and churches can get sidetracked very easily. Uh, you know, even churches that are spot on doctrinally can then be derailed because relationships in the church go south. And I dare say some of you in here tonight in past churches you've been a part of, maybe it was a vibrant ministry, a growing ministry, a very doctrinally solid church you were a part of, but something happened with relationships in that church, either between the ministers and the people, ministers with one another, the people with one another. Something happened in the fellowship, 
and your church that you remember so fondly that was doctrinally sound and growing fell apart because of relationships, right? And it really shows us that what church ministries have to do, we, we have to guard ourselves uh, doctrinally related. We always have to uh, pursue sound doctrine, but we also have to pursue healthy relationships. We have to do both. Both. And you know, it's striking that in Jesus' time with his disciples in the Gospel of John, right before he went to the cross and left them, he told them in John 15 uh, three relationships they were going to have to be mindful of after he departed from them. He said, first of all, abide in me because you can do nothing apart from me. So abide in me, let my words abide in you so that you can bear fruit, more fruit, and finally he said much fruit. And then secondly, he said, you've got to be mindful of your relationship with the unbelieving world. They're not going to like you. And you just need to accept that. They're going to hate you, he said, because they hated me. And so we're not to be surprised by that. That's not to shock us or cause us to falter in our own relationship with the Lord, knowing that unbelievers won't agree with us. And then thirdly, he said, you need to be mindful of your relationships with one another. You need to love one another. And the world, he said in John 13, will know you're my disciples if you have love one for another. So even Jesus addressed this need with his disciples about the need for guarding relationships and being mindful of our relationships. Again, our doctrine matters, but our relationships also matter in the church. And so Paul is giving attention after he's spoken about some doctrine in 1 Thessalonians. And he'll speak about doctrine again in 2 Thessalonians. He takes time out to remind them that it's also important to guard relationships. So what's that going to look like? First of all, he talks to them about their relationship to leaders. Their relationship to leaders. In uh, verse 12 there, he says, But we appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and have charge of you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, from Ephesians chapter 4, do you remember from that book in the Bible why God gives leaders to the church? Do you remember that passage about evangelists, apostles, evangelists, pastors, teachers, so forth and so on? Why did Paul say God gives leaders to the church? For the equipping of the saints. Uh, for works of ministry, right? The equipping of the saints. So why do we have leaders? To build up the body. Now, here's a question for you. Am I to teach you the Word of God to help you grow so you'll turn around and do ministry? Or do you simply pay me and your other staff members to do it all for you? Which is it? Number one. I hope it's number one. Exactly. We teach the Word. We equip you so that you'll go out of here 
as disciples, missionaries scattered in the world, and you'll have a ministry among your friends and family members and among your neighbors and co-workers. Uh, and so, what is our relationship to be to our leaders? He mentions a couple of things here. First of all, respect. Respect. And then, esteem. He says, respect those who labor among you and have charge of you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now notice that. Because of their work. It's not because you will always agree with us. Because you won't. You don't always agree with your spouses and your children. Right? You don't agree with your own family members always. So if you think you're always going to agree with your church leaders, you're living a pipe dream. Right? Uh... But he says, respect them because of their work. Most pastors I know probably work, most ministers, uh, not just pastors, ministers in general, probably 48 to 65 hours a week. And, and I'll explain to you a little bit about the life uh, of a pastor. You might think I'm kidding, but I'm not. It's not a complaint. I love what I do. Uh, but it's for those who think a pastor only works one day a week and then he works too long. <laughs> and let me also let me also preface my comments by saying too that um, now, currently at Pitts, with multiple pastors, uh, division of labor and ministry. Things have gotten easier because of the way we divide things up. Even like hospital days and, and surgeries. And then plus, some things just get faster and easier as the years go by and you, you do it more all the time. And so in many ways, I'd say my life as a pastor has probably got simpler than maybe in my first decade as a pastor. Uh, and I, probably my life would be easier than some of the smaller churches here in Cabarrus County that maybe only have a pastor and that's all, or a pastor and one other minister, because they have to do everything. Uh, but here's what a pastor's life can look like. After a full day at church, uh, hospital visitation, maybe visiting with prospects, uh, maybe you have one or two counseling appointments. Had one today that went on for about two hours. Uh, then your study time, and then you might have members in your church that have needs going on in their lives and their families. You spend time with them. You go home for supper. You sit down for a meal. It's not unusual for a call to come in. You go back out again to handle something. In a family, families get home after work and after meal and things blow up for them and they'll call you in. You get back home about nine. Again, it's not a constant thing. I certainly don't want to overplay it. Then the next morning, maybe have people start to have surgery about 6.30, 7 in the morning. You're in the hospital a couple hours. You get to the office and they say, oh, here's one or two people. You got you to gotta call them. They're, they're anxious to, to see you right now. And then on top of all that, you know, two services a week, I do three. 
with Taylor Glenn that I do on, on my Wednesday mornings. The rule of thumb is for every minute that you speak, there is to be one hour of preparation. That, that's the rule of thumb. I mean, even, even homiletics professors will tell you you can't do that because you've got a, a church to pastor. But they tell you that so you'll be serious about your studies. If you preach on a Sunday morning, 30, 40 minutes, you're supposed to have 30, 40 hours of prep in for that. And same for, for each message. And the challenge of a pastor is because you speak to the same group of people week after week. You know, an evangelist can go around, he can work on 10 or 12 messages and go around different churches. And boy, he can fine-tune those dozen messages and just preach them in different places. Uh, but a pastor is speaking to the same group of people week after week, year after year. And so that's a challenge. Then there's the committee meetings a pastor attends and then it, there's a given in ministry when it's your day off. Uh, urgent matters come up that end up taking a couple of hours of your day off, maybe your whole day off. Then you go on vacation, and it's very common. Uh, your vacations are interrupted by very serious things, deaths or, or something of that matter. And that's harder when your kids are young. Last year, I was called back from a vacation early to do a funeral last year. And the family I was doing it for, the lady who was not in our church here but related to people, she said, I am so sorry. She said, I was a pastor's kid growing up. And she said, Pastor, I don't remember a single vacation growing up that my family ever went on that we got to stay the whole week. She said, Dad was always called back. We obeyed you and stayed alive when you were at the beach. <laughs> Y'all were good last week. You stayed alive. <laughs> so I, and then, you know, you get tied up with things during the week. And so Saturday rolls around. You might be behind on Sunday. And so when other dads in the church are on the ball fields with their kids, you're finishing getting ready for Sunday. So... Those who say a pastor works one day a week and then he works too long, maybe hang out with the pastor sometimes. <laughs> so what's Paul say? Respect those who labor among you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Amen. Because of the ministry. A pastor is a shepherd who labors. He has spiritual authority in the church. He's certainly not a dictator. His leadership is not without accountability. But he is a leader who is over the flock of the Lord. And he instructs. He, he teaches the Word of God. admonishes the flock to obey and live out the Word of God. So the first relationship Paul wants them to focus in on and kind of do a heart check is their relationship to their leaders. Then secondly, you'll notice he starts talking about their relationship to one another. To one another. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, beloved, to admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them. Uh, see that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. So in your relationships with one another, what's he say? Peace. Be at peace. You know, the Bible says as far as it depends on you, 
You are to be at peace with one another. We're not to be the cause of undue unrest in the body of Christ. You're not to be a busybody. You're not to stir up strife or gossip or to do anything that would disrupt the fellowship in any way. Uh, when things do happen that shouldn't have happened, uh, try to handle it in the right way. Follow a pattern set down in Matthew 18 that you go to the person privately and try to settle it that way first. So have a goal to be at peace with one another. Then he says warn. He, he talks about... Uh, we urge you, beloved, to admonish the idlers and encourage the faint-hearted. Uh, to admonish or warn the idle or the unruly. Now, this is a word that has a lot of different nuances to it. It's a military term. The background of it, it's a military term that speaks of those who break ranks with everybody else and they want to walk down their own path and do their own thing. And in some churches, there are, there are individuals who will do that. Sometimes there are groups of people in the church, like maybe a Sunday school class, who act as though they are their own independent church in that particular church. And it doesn't matter what anybody else does in the church or what any of the leaders say or ask of people. No, they're, they're their own little unit in the church. And they're going to do what they want to do, how they want to do it, when and how they want to do it. They're, you know, they break ranks with the church fellowship. And so Paul is saying admonish people that they, they wouldn't do things like that. Again, other possible meanings of the word, uh, insubordinate, uh, unruly people, people who are troublemakers, people who are undisciplined or idle, referring to those in the church that don't accept their responsibility to pull their share of the ministry. Uh, it's a common statistic in churches, been thrown out for years, and I'm going to tell you in a minute why it's wrong, but a common statistic that 20% do all the giving and serving. You've heard that before, right? 20% do all the giving and serving. Post-COVID, that statistic is absolutely incorrect. Uh, probably 5 to 10% in the church do all the serving and the giving. Serving and giving in churches has gone significantly down since 2020. You don't believe me? Call around, just talk to different pastors about it. What does that mean? That means 90 or 95% in any given church pretty much are idle, undisciplined. What does that mean? They're being unfaithful to God. Folks, remember, the Bible in the New Testament speaks in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter chapter 4 about different spiritual gifts that are given to members in the body. And each one is to learn what their gift is, develop that gift, and then use it for the glory of God in that assembly of believers. Because... 
That's how God puts a church family together. Uh, one's an eye, one's a nose, one's a mouth, one's an ear, one's a hand, one's a foot. You put all the pieces of a church family together, if everybody is living out their spiritual gift, you have a healthy body. And what Paul is saying to them here is encourage those who are idle and they're not doing that. And then he goes on to say, uh, encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Comfort the faint-hearted or the weak. Pastors will also tell you every congregation has their share of the weak. Okay? Uh, out of a hundred people, uh, you will typically have maybe two or three people or two or three families who will need you probably more than all the other families in the church put together. Seriously. Congregations have no idea how pastors invest in some people in the congregation who are needy and weak and need encouragement. And how much of your time can be poured in to... to a few families or a few people. Again, it's not to complain, it's just to point out a reality. You'd be shocked to learn of some of the decisions I'm expected to make for some parishioners or some families in the church. I'm sure Matthew uh, would tell you the same thing. Uh, again, it's just simply a part of pastoring. He says... Uh, Admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Uphold the weak. Uphold the weak. Uh, this is much the same as, as uh, encouraging the faint-hearted. George Washington Carver said, How far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and the strong. Because someday in life, you will have been all of the above. <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting the way he words it here. Support the weak, or literally the one without strength. And in the Greek, it is the word for strength. With the al alpha privative in front of it that negates it or makes it opposite. So the word strength, the alpha primitive in front of it, the one without strength. Uh, it's like the word theist. The theist is somebody who believes in God. You put the alpha primitive in front of it, the, the A, atheist, somebody who doesn't believe in God. The word here is the word for strength or being strong. Put the A in front of it. It's just the opposite. Uh, there are people in the body of Christ that will be weak, can be weak, potentially over a number of things. And when you study out that word weak in the New Testament, it can yield a number of different points of application. For instance, and I've given these to you, there, there's a spiritual weakness caused by the natural inability of the flesh. For instance, Jesus wanted His disciples to pray, but what did they keep doing? Falling asleep. Falling asleep. 
Sometimes there are people in the church that want to do things, but they're weak. Maybe they even have a handicap of some sort that prevents them. Or maybe they don't know what to do. Uh, we need to be understanding with them and help them. There's also a spiritual weakness in some who are in bondage to some life-dominating habit. There's that kind of weakness. Uh, a second application, the way this is used, there's also a weakness related to a lack of courage to trust God in the difficulties of life. Even Abraham was guilty of this. When he went down to Egypt, he trusted God to take him to a new land, but he got down to Egypt and he was scared. So what did he say to Pharaoh about his wife? She's my sister. He was strong in faith enough to go to a new place where God had called him, and yet he was struggling in trusting God to protect him when he went down to Egypt. Well, there are people in the church, I think most of us in some area of life, where we're weak in faith, even though we may be mature believers. There's one area of your life that might be a weak spot. So Paul's saying help people when you find them in that scenario. Uh, thirdly, there's a weakness in us related to the knowledge of God's will. Sometimes we just don't know what God's will is. And, uh, you know, Paul gave that illustration in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, about sometimes we pray and don't know what to pray for. And we have to trust that the Holy Spirit is also making intercession for us to help us in that weakness. So, a weakness related to a knowledge of God's will. And, and so again, these are applications you find in the New Testament of that uh, word weak. A spiritual weakness caused by the natural inability of the flesh. A weakness related to a lack of courage to trust God in the most difficult circumstances of life. And a weakness in knowing the will of God. That's some of the different nuances of, of weakness. And again, what's Paul saying? What's Paul saying? Help the weak in these different scenarios. Uh, we can probably learn something here from the animal world. Uh, many people have watched geese fly overhead in those V formations. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Well, those who study these things have looked into that a little bit more. And they have found out there's a method to the madness. The wind resistance is the most on the goose up front and the ones beside him or her. The ones leading the charge. Behind them, in the draft, the flying is easier. And so what they've noticed as they've studied this if they're going a long distance, they will keep rotating out those positions. Uh, and so there's a fresh one up front. And what do you hear them doing as they go overhead? Quacking at one another, right? As they believe they're saying, keep it up, keep up the pace, good job, keep it up. They're <laughs> encouraging. <laughs> They're literally upholding the weak. They're helping one another out. And that's how we're to be in the family of God. Pastor? Yes? When one of them is 
gets hurt or has to land, uh -huh. another one will go down with it and stay with it. Okay, how about that? Interesting. That's great. Then notice what he says. Patient with all. Be patient with all of them. It literally means having a long spirit. You ever get frustrated with people and just get short with them? Well, he's talking here, be long with people. Long-suffering, long-bearing with people. A great lesson of patience here with men is the example of Andrew Carnegie, at one time the wealthiest man in America. He came to America from Scotland, and after doing many odd jobs, he ended up as the largest steel manufacturer in the U.S. At one time, he had 43 millionaires working for him in the days when to be a millionaire would be like if you had $20 million today. Well, a reporter asked Carnegie how he had 43 millionaires working for him. Uh, Carnegie responded that these men had not been millionaires until they began working for him. So the next question the reporter was, was had, had was, well, how did you develop these men to become so valuable to you that you would pay them that much? Carnegie replied that men are developed the same way gold is mined. When gold is mined, several tons of dirt must be moved to get an ounce of gold. But one doesn't go into mining to look for dirt, he said. You go into gold mining to look for gold. He said, in other words, don't look for the flaws in people. Look for the gold, not the dirt. Mine the gold in people and shove the dirt out of the way. Focus in on the gold in them. If you're looking hard enough for gold in them, you will find it. I would call that being patient with people, wouldn't you? And you know, it's one of the hardest characteristics to develop, isn't it? But it helps us to develop patience with people when we read in the Scripture in passages like 2 Peter 3.9 that God is patient with us. Aren't you glad God was patient with you and that His nature is patient? So that helps us when we're struggling with patience to remember God's perfect and He's been patient with us. Uh, then, then Paul says here... Uh, See that none of you repays evil for evil. Uh, so don't seek revenge or evil, but pursue good. Seek to do good to one another. The moment you feel yourself wanting to return evil for evil, what can you know in that moment? You're not being led of the Spirit. You are sure. not being led of the Spirit. The moment you want to return evil for evil or seek revenge, you can know you're out of the will of God. And Paul says instead, pursue good. Notice that word pursue in some translations. Pursue. A chasing after effort. Pursuing good. Both for yourself and for others in the church. And he says, really, for, for all. Seek to do good 
to one another and to all. So that's their relationship to one another. But he's not done yet. Thirdly, his relationship to God. He goes on in verse 16 to say, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise the words of prophets, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. First of all, he begins by saying, Rejoice always. Folks, think about it. Um... We've got a lot to be rejoicing about, don't we, as Christians? Just think of the Christian life a minute. Just, just Christian life alone. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's something to rejoice about. You better believe it. Later on in Romans chapter 8, begin in verse 31, he says, there is no separation from God for those who are in Christ. No condemnation, no separation. And then earlier in Romans 8, he says, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. So, no condemnation for those who are saved. You don't have to fear a coming judgment where you're going to face condemnation. You're never going to be separated from God if you're in Christ. You're going to be with Him for all eternity. And in between those bookends of when you got saved and one day when you go to glory to see Him, in between those bookends, there in the middle, He's helping you through all of your weaknesses. Do you have reason to rejoice? Yes. And then He says, pray without ceasing. Prayer is a way of life, dependence on God. Uh, most of us need to do a better job of guarding and protecting systematic daily prayer times. We need to do a much better job, most of us. Someone once said, He who would lay hold of God must first empty his hands of trifles. We need to pray because we need wisdom and guidance. We're in spiritual warfare. We, we need to pray. Uh, then he goes on here in verse 18 to say too that we're to be filled with gratitude. Look at what he says. Give thanks in all circumstances. I, I know there are circumstances you've been through in life. Maybe I'm speaking to somebody tonight that's in one of these that I'm going to refer to. It's a terrible time in your life. A terrible circumstance. But for those who have had that experience in the past and you've come through it and you're on the other side of it, I dare say as you look back on what you considered a terrible circumstance at the time, it was through that that God probably taught you more about himself in that time than any other time in your life. Right? And so, give thanks in all circumstances. I, I, you know, I think of Joseph. At the beach last week, I was studying some of the life of Joseph. 
Uh, one of these days, I'm going to do a character study sermon series on Joseph. We did one last year on Abraham. I want to do one on Joseph, largest narrative in the book of Genesis. I mean, think of all that he went through for years and years and years and years and years. But then what God did in his life through that. And then he got to the other end. He had saved many people and his brothers came to him and they were scared that now that their dad was dead, he was going to take revenge. And he said, no, what you meant for good, oh, what you meant for evil, God used for good, for the salvation of many people. Notice this verse when it says, give thanks in all circumstances. It's not commanding us to feel thankful. Feeling can be a result of what we do. It's an act of the will. As an act of the will, we need to give God thanks in all circumstances, knowing it's His will and He deserves it. Then he says in verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. And, and using that word there, uh, not quenching the Spirit, it, it's the language of a, a flame. I think of the day of Pentecost. Um, also, it may be an allusion to fire in the Old Testament. You know, in the temple, there was always to be a fire to, to be kept burning. It was a sign of devotion to God. Well, you can quench a fire by putting it out, by preventing the Spirit from working. You can quench a fire by starving it, cover a flame, take away the oxygen that it needs. So in your spiritual life, you can neglect Bible study and prayer and worship. You can neglect the things of God in your life. Uh, Paul told Timothy to fan into flames the gift of God. He was to stir up his spiritual life, not quench it. And so there's a balance here. The sovereignty of God, the moving of the Spirit, but there's a part that we play too. We're to seek after the Lord in spiritual disciplines, right? <laughs> Oswald Sanders said on one occasion, you are as close to God right now as you want to be. And that's true, isn't it? Do not quench the Spirit. We can get so busy we don't hear the Spirit. We can have sin in our lives that grieves the Spirit. We're not to do that. And then he goes on to say, do not despise the words of prophets. This would have been those at the time preaching and teaching the Word of God. Think of all the people today, even some who profess to know Christ, who never go to church anymore. They never hear a Sunday school teacher teach the Word. They never hear a pastor preach the Word of God. They've separated themselves away from the body of Christ. And they never hear the words of Scripture anymore. But we're to love it. Then he says in, in verse 20, do not despise prophecies. Here again, remember, the canon of Scripture wasn't given yet. God was still using men like Paul, like John and Peter and James in setting forth the Word of God. Uh, 
Don't despise prophecies. Don't quench the Spirit. But then he goes on to say in verse 21, be discerning. Don't be duped by everything either. You know, as John says in 1 John 4, we have to test the spirits. What we're hearing proclaimed, does it match up with the rest of Scripture? We need to be discerning and test things out, right? We need to love the words of prophets, love prophecy, love preaching of the words. So we also need to be testing and discerning of it. Is it accurate? And then finally he says, turn away from evil. Abstain from every form of evil. All of these things are things that have to do with their relationship with God. Folks, the Bible recognizes that Christians live in an evil world. The Bible doesn't say that we are to therefore disengage from the world because it's an evil world. We're to be in the world but not of the world. Our lives are to be different. We're to abstain from every form of evil. If we're not different, then we really can't say to a lost world that the gospel transforms you. Because they'll look at your life and say, I don't see much of a transformed life. We need to be different because already unbelievers tend to say as an excuse, I realize they use it as an excuse, but they're already saying... Uh, to their co-workers and neighbors, why do I need to go to church with you? You are no different than me. We are to be different. Our lives are to display the reality of our testimony that God has converted us. He's transformed us. And people are to see that. They're to... They're, they're not just simply to hear the gospel from our lips, which they're to do that, we're to be witnesses, but they're to see the transforming power of the gospel in our lives so that our talk and our walk matches up together. So we need to abstain from all forms of evil. We need to guard our testimonies. And so what are some lessons? There's the need to examine, there's the need to examine our relationships across different areas of our lives, bringing our lives into conformity to the scripture in those areas. There is the need to examine our relationships across different areas of our lives, bringing our lives into conformity to the scriptures in those areas. Second lesson, our lives and practical ways are to be salt and light. And then lastly, if we don't guard our relationships, we can soon lose our testimony. So, 
from 12, verse 12 down to verse 22. What's Paul address? Three relationships, right? Your relationship to your leaders, your relationship to one another, and your relationship to God. I want you to go home and study this passage again. And think of those three areas in your life. Your relationship to your leaders, your relationship to one another, and your relationship to God. And what this passage shows you in all three of those areas. A lot is said here in a little bit of space. It's as though Paul, he's cramming in as much as he can cram in before he finishes this letter. 